Thanks for tuning in to Lessons with Troy, the podcast. I'm your host, Troy Brenning-Meyer. This week, I'm happy to have world-class Dobro player and one of the nicest people you'll ever meet, Phil Ledbetter, on the show. In addition to playing and touring with some of the best acts in bluegrass music, Phil has won the IBMA Dobro Player of the Year multiple times and has most recently fought and survived a truly life-threatening battle with cancer to now be back on his feet, playing music, and inspiring others with his life story. In this podcast, he shares so many wonderful stories of his life in music and his battles with cancer. If you want to learn more about Phil and his music, you can visit his site at www.unclephilonline.com. Also, as always, if you're interested in learning more about playing Dobro, Lap Steel, Weisenborn, or Pedal Steel, be sure to check out my site, LessonsWithJoy.com. Hey everybody, let's go ahead and welcome Phil Ledbetter to the podcast all the way from Knoxville, Tennessee. How's it going, Phil? Man, it's going good. Uh, <laughs> glad to be part of this. Yeah, welcome. I, I know that you know we've been Facebook friends for a while and emailed and stuff, but this is cool to actually be uh, talking to you and hearing hearing your awesome Southern accent. I love that. <laughs> oh, I've, I've got it pretty bad, but uh, that's why we were using the voice memo a minute ago, and I was wondering if Siri could pick it up. I mean, I don't know if the Siri picks Southern up very good. Sometimes I'll try to use it and talk two or three times, and it's like, I don't get anywhere. They don't, Siri just don't pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, why don't we just get started with uh, with uh, telling us a little bit. How did you get started playing the dobro? Well, I started in 74, a uh, family of musicians. My dad was a banjo player. My dad actually, at one time, he was in the circle with guys around here that played, and one of the guys was a bashful brother, Oswald. And that was way before the Opry and the Acuff and all, because my dad was born in 1909. So he is 54 when I was born. So he was wow. way ahead of me. And uh, anyway, he was in that circle of picket a little bit, and then he quit. But as the kids came along, especially my brother, my dad was, he didn't pick anymore. He was a two-finger banjo player. But he wanted my brother to pick it up. So my brother started playing banjo, and he was older, and I liked I liked the what I was hearing him play in his bedroom. I mean, uh, a lot of the records and stuff. And he'd go to work, and I would actually go downstairs and uh, turn on his stereo and listen to Flat and Scruggs. I, I heard, you know, Josh a lot. And uh, when I heard Josh, it was like I, I really liked that instrument. I didn't know what it was. And, you know, I asked my brother and told me, you know, about the dobro. So the next thing I knew, I'm in a music store. Uh, got, a, got a little guitar. It was about 30 bucks and put a riser nut on it and uh, and just uh, some real crappy picks that uh, back then we didn't know, you know, coming a, <laughs> a little pack and uh, kind of started playing. And uh, I was I was left handed when I started. So uh, I, when I started getting serious about it, I you know, realize, well, you got to put the strings on left-handed. So I would string this thing left-handed and try to play, and my brother would keep changing strings back. It just happened every day. I'd come home from school excited to play, and then it wouldn't work right-handed. So I finally gave up after several months. And uh, 
start playing right-handed. And uh, wasn't too much longer. I, I got my first dobro that my dad ordered from a company called Freeport Music, at, uh, a little mail order catalog. I still remember he paid two hundred and sixty-four dollars for it, and it was a lot of money back then. Wow, and it was yeah. a it was a sixty D uh, dobro, uh, California made, of course, uh, a natural. Uh, I did, everybody had sunburst back then. This one was one of the natural guitars and i hated it because my dad ordered that but as time went along it was pretty cool because it's different than the rest so i played that for a while and uh i got in uh, my first band uh, i was i guess i was getting ready to maybe turn 13 somewhere along that line wow and um it was funny i had been playing long so we started playing and and uh got to do all kinds of things around town uh, we were played for all the mayors and people like that and uh, the best thing we got to do was in in 70 76 a few years later we played and, and stuff we'd been kind of plugged in and i think 76 i was 14 and uh anyway we got a call and uh, we got to go to the white get a chance to go to the white house and we went to the white house in uh wow. july, july of 76 president ford was the president then and we got to go play. And, uh, you know, after that, it was like, you know, I was at the time I was involved. I played baseball and stuff at school. But, you know, this Dobro uh, just it, it, it hooked me. And and I, I never I never was interested in anything anymore, which wasn't very good anyway at the other stuff and questionable about <laughs> how good on the choice I made on this, but I just, uh, I I found something I liked and it became, it became more about, you know, uh, what, uh, what made you happy. And I was every day at school, man, I couldn't wait to get home and practice. And, and a a cool little story. I'll tell you my dad, you know, being a picker, first thing I started, I was, I was a drummer in school. I, I actually played saxophone. I don't, remember nothing about it but uh i wanted to play drums and you had they didn't want you to play drums because they made a lot of noise at school so you had to start with a brass instrument or something first so i did saxophone and i came in it was funny we had six drummers they all had really good drums and everything and i came in and it was like a week i went from the sixth to first chair drummer uh, and and these guys been playing a while, so I really really thought well, I'm gonna be a drummer. And my dad wouldn't let me practice in the house. He didn't like he didn't like that kind of stuff. So my friends <laughs> would come over, and it would it'd be funny. They'd say we we didn't even knock on your door. We come up the driveway and we heard drums out in the woods. <laughs> so they would <laughs> my friends would follow me to the woods. And I remember one day in particular it was raining and. All the water is dripping out, and I'm out there playing my drums, and and I decided I didn't want to do this anymore because once you know I heard flat scrugs, I got hooked, and uh, when I did that, my dad was cool. It was you know he he wanted me upstairs on the couch practicing then because he was sitting there and listen. So uh, I guess in the end, it made him happy I was playing, but but my dad passed before he ever knew that I really, I mean he passed in '80 and. Uh, you know, like J.D. Crow was my dad's very favorite, and he gave me my dad gave me brought me the the old home place album when I was young, and that's the one that really got me got me hooked. And um, I remember my dad told me he said one day we're gonna 
we're going to figure out something where we get to meet J.D. Crow. My dad never got to meet him, so uh, oh, I just man. thought that was weird. I'm, I'm sure he knows, though. But, oh, uh, for sure. It was, uh, it, was, it was cool, you know, and it's kind of how I started. And, yeah. and that's been, you know, I was, I was in junior high then, and I'll say this, this the music, the blue, bluegrass wasn't cool when I started. And uh, I'll tell you, I took a friend of mine. One time we had went, I guess the Oak Ridge boys were pretty big about that time. And I took him to see a band called Boone Creek, which uh, was Ricky Skaggs, Jerry Douglas and, and all we went in and took him to this festival and, and it seemed like he really liked it. Well, Monday we go to school and uh, I was telling somebody about it. He goes, well, I didn't go to no bluegrass festival. You know, it wasn't cool. So, <laughs> so I ran into this, I ran into this guy, at my 25th reunion and, uh, this is after Ricky Skaggs done blew the world apart. He's done been on top. Friend comes straight over me, says, You remember years ago, me and you went and saw Ricky Skaggs at the little festival. And I, I told him, I said, I don't remember. I thought it was somebody else. And he realized <laughs> he realized I'd busted him. <laughs> but it's funny. Then forward later, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love Boone Creek, man. That's their stuff. I love Jerry's tone on on those albums. Man, though, they so. they were my favorite. Uh, the first time I saw them, they played uh, they played every month at a place here called Buddy's Barbecue. Back when they had music, and uh, we had two Buddies Barbecues. They both had music, and you could go to one. And if you didn't like a band, you could go to the other one. It would be like. What was cool is a country gentleman may be playing on one side of town, and you can go over and J.D. Crow or Spectrum, uh, which was Bela, and whoever was on the other end of town. So wow. Boone Creek, the first time I saw them, I've always been, I mean, I, I guess I, I go back a little bit. Mike Aldridge was a guy that actually really got me on to play because I got that first album, that Tacoma album, and heard him do Pick Away and Green Sleeves and everything. And uh that's that was a guy that I really you know got me going, and um, so Boone Creek was in town, and I'd heard Jerry on the old Home Place album, which Jerry played very little on there. It was I realized after going with JD later, Jerry had only been with a band just a few days when they did that record. He wasn't even a member, and uh, so he was limited what he played on there. So it was like you know uh, just really good to the melody type stuff. And I went and I got a seat at Boone, at Boone Creek at the Buddies. And my seat that I got was right in the very front. I was right in front of Jerry. And it's a weird thing. Uh, and, I mean, musical folks understand this. But I remember when he did his first solo, I'd never saw him live. And I'd never seen people raise a bar and play the stuff he played. And I remember it was real funny. I felt something in the back of my neck. It felt like my muscles were jumping out of my head. And it was like you're having muscle spasms. And it it was so weird. I mean, this is true. I had to get up and go out because I thought, well, something's getting ready to happen here. And I think it was just that it blew me. I mean, I was two feet away from him watching. And it was like, wow, this is, I've never seen, I've never seen this. So, uh, I used wow. to I used to go down and take my tape recorder and I would tape him, and I would always uh, this will be Saturday night and you know I guess I can admit now, but, uh, I I didn't go to I didn't I, I missed a lot of Mondays and Tuesdays at school because I would get so obsessed with those tapes 
that I just couldn't, you know, Monday would come along and I'd be, <laughs> I'd be deathly ill till my mom's car pulled out. And then here come the Dobro and the Boom Creek tapes. And I still, I still have those tapes, but it was, it was a real experience. Uh, we got, I got to know Jerry good in that time. And, uh, a funny thing about, about it is how things are now. You can go online and get tab and, and whatever you need back then. I remember when I first met Jerry, I walked across a parking lot and, uh, it's a whole different thing than, than now. I, you know, went across and said, Hey, I, you wouldn't show me that lick that you, that you play, you played in so-and-so song and, uh, you know, give me an idea on that. And he goes, well, practice and walked on, walked <laughs> on. And he kind of laughed. I mean, people used to not really surrender stuff up, but really? uh, yeah, it was cool. I mean, he, 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 he kind of laughed at that, but it was, Jer- <laughs> it was just Jerry. I mean, I was 14. Jerry wasn't much older at the time, but, uh, you know, from I guess from then on, we were we just become you know good buddies, and and anytime he was in town, it was just uh, you know I got to know a lot of players that way, and um, like with Jerry when I got sick and everything, which we'll get into later, I guess, but uh, he was one of the first guys that contacted me and wanted to to help out and and oh. and stuff, and uh, yeah. he gave us a. Uh, I, I get this, and, and Paul Beard was a big was a big deal on this too. But Paul had got with Jerry, and they donated a uh, a Beard guitar, and Jerry had went back and had all of uh, Union Station and Allison Krauss to sign it. So we raffled that, and oh, uh, wow. it's just uh, you know the, these guys. A lot of, a lot of people don't realize. So, I mean, you don't have a lot of people seeing us don't have this relationship, but it's like in 2005 when I had won the Dobro player of the year, um, I get to my car and it's, it's just unreal. I had, uh, text messages from so many great Dobro players and the community is these guys are such good guys that it's all, a uh, you know, uh, it's it's all about each other, and and we've always been like that. I guess when when you know Rob wins or whatever, I'm always quick to text, and Rob was the same with me, and and it's just good to, that this community is not a uh, a uh, I, I guess I want to say a jealous ain't really the word that I want to use, but it's a group of guys that really are happy for each other when things happen and you know guy all these guys if we if we didn't pick we'd probably still all be friends because they're just uh they're just good guys and they're always there when you need them nice oh that's that's great yeah i've noticed that being you know the few years i've been in the dobro community how it it is it's it's different than the i would guess the guitar community like you're saying you're talking with jerry douglas and to, to me you know you know, you and him, it's like Eddie Van Halen, you know, of the, oh, of the guitar. He, <laughs> you know, the thing about Jerry it, that's always been good is I've watched him evolve. Uh, and Dobro players will know this. Jerry's Jerry's been like four different people. He had a sound when he was with Boone Creek that that it was just, it was a whole different. It's like you got player one. And then he went with the whites. His whole sound changed again. So you got player two. Then you go in with Alice and Krauss, and he's changed the whole way he plays, his whole approach. And it's 
you got that. And then he down with the Earls of Leicester. Then he goes back and it's just the guy is he he's like a chameleon. He he can shape he can shape himself so much to where he's playing, who he's playing with. And I think that's a big key on playing with different bands and stuff. And I've had to do that with uh, between J.D. Crow and then I played with the Whites for a while and uh, then Dale Ann Bradley. The, the way you play around singers like Dale Ann is totally different than the way you play with uh, J.D. Crow or what. And and it's weird. You just have to ch- you change your styles up. But Jerry is really good at that and uh and you know well there's so many guys now that can do that really well yeah yeah well let's rewind a little bit i have a lot of students that watch this Mm -hmm. and and, um you know i know that they'd probably be curious when when you were kind of uh, a student of the instrument let's say Mm -hmm. you know and and you're really get digging in there and, and practicing and stuff what what was your what was your days like when you were uh well back in the day back back in the day that's 74, 75 time, I would, um, I would come home, like I said, from school and I would, I had this on my mind all the time when I was on the bus, I used to carry my picks with me to school and I would sit and practice forward rolls on the bus seat. Then when I got to my school, I remember so many times my teacher come and saying, you can't be picking on your desk. I'd be rolling. I'd roll on my knees. It was just, I did that all the time. I couldn't wait to get home. And as soon as I would get home, it was like, my mom would say, well, dinner's ready, you know, and it was like, oh, this is going to be quick because I'm ready to go practice. And wow. so it was funny because our days used to be get home, get on your bicycle and ride. And when I found started playing Dobro, I, I didn't do that no more. I came in, stayed home. Uh, back then, the deal was you had a turntable that uh, played uh, uh, four speeds. If you were lucky, you had four speeds. <laughs> and I would have these albums that were, you know, 33 and a third speed. This might be new language for a lot of, of young guys. <laughs> but uh, the thing was, you would you would slow you would slow those records down to 16, and uh, then your record player would always skip. So you had to stack pennies on, on top to keep from bouncing. A lot of the older guys know what I'm talking about, stack <laughs> pennies. And uh, even when you slowed it at 16, unlike uh, programs they've got now, when you slowed to 16, the, uh, like many now, will will still do pitch correction and put you, you may slow down, but it'll still, if you're playing a G, it'll still keep you in tune well, records don't do that so a lot of times you'd put things on and it would actually drop you four octaves so you know if it was in g it's impossible really to learn it you know uh four octaves down but that's a way i would play along and what they got did that helped me a lot was I would always practice. I'd always practice with headphones, and what I would do. The reason I would do that is I didn't want to hear myself because what happens is when you're playing a lot of times. It was for me, if I could hear myself, you find yourself bogging down because you've missed something or whatever. With headphones on, it sounds like you're playing good because you're hearing somebody else a little. But the uh-huh. thing that happens is since you're not stopping where you've got bad spots, you you wind up getting your flow because you're not stopping. So the ri- the rhythm, the flow of the rhythm doesn't change up because you're not hearing yourself mess up. 
And as I would play it, then I would move one ear earphone off one side where I could play and it was tolerable. And then, and then eventually, you know, you could pull them off and then play along. And that's, that's what I always did. I always practiced playing along with stuff and, uh, listening i guess with with ways i learned to i i started early i mean i mentioned mike aldridge and jerry douglas and and all those guys uh, josh I, I worked real hard to try to learn to play like those i would play and at one time uh i mean i and i knew all those solos were real good i could play them uh, just like they were and the thing about it is then i would go somewhere and pick and if the people i picked with didn't know the songs I learned, I couldn't couldn't play. I only knew what I'd learned. Mm. So I started working a lot on thinking, you know, uh, there's only one Jerry Douglas, there's only one Josh, there's only one Mike, and those guys are never going to, nobody's ever going to beat Jerry Douglas at Jerry or Mike at Mike. And I, I thought, you know, what I need to do is cut myself in a direction where I understand this instrument. And I'm not playing everybody else's licks and stuff. So for a while there, I quit listening to dobro players. I, I listened, uh, when I listened to bluegrass, I listened real heavy to the banjo because they're tuned real similar. I, I learned banjo riffs. I started listening to mandolins and learning mandolin licks. And I realized that's what a lot of people do anyway. Sam Bush, guys like that, that will listen to uh, people like uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan or whoever and learn licks. Uh, they would play or BB King and things, and it wound up that I, I was get I started getting influences by listening to all these other people that played other instruments, listen to fiddles. So I started trying to learn the melodies they played a lot. And what's weird is when I I got I went through nursing school in in nineteen uh, I think I guess eighty eighty three something like that. And when I went through nursing school, I got married about that time, and I figured staying home was what I needed to do and work. So for three years, I quit playing dobro. I didn't own a dobro. I, I sold it, kept my picks. I didn't play for three years. This was wow. from 83, 83 through 80, 86, 87. And my wife kept sitting on me trying to get me to start playing again. And I said, I, I want to be a nurse. I want to be a nurse. So... Um, uh, we had a jam session one night, and a guy named Bobby Wolf, who builds Wolf guitars, sure, yeah. played, played in the band with his son. And uh, we had a little jam session, and I got invited. And uh, his son's name's Daryl, Daryl Wolf. And Daryl said, Come pick. And I said, Well, I don't have a Dobro. So Daryl. Uh, Said I got one, so he brings me his dad's dobro. It was it was Wolf Number One that I had. It was his very first one, and uh, it was uh, made it look like a, a, a vintage uh, herringbone, uh, exactly the way he built it. So I played, and after all those years, we played maybe the first thirty minutes, and it started coming back to me. So uh, what's weird is I had had a we'd had a car wreck. Uh, just a few months back from from that, and uh, and it wasn't our fault or anything. And I knew that, you know, that things can be taken from you real quick, which I you know found that out again later on in life, which we'll get to with that. But uh, uh, I said, you know, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna pick again. So I called Daryl Wolf's dad up and ordered me a dope, uh, one of his guitars. I wound up getting number seventeen, and. Uh, 
picked a little bit and I decided I wanted to move to Nashville. And, and what was funny about that now, you know, there's a few things I'll back up and tell you that I missed, but thing about that is I went to Nashville, I had no job playing or anything like that. But when I got to Nashville, I intended to go down there and play, you know, uh, it was a little easier then because there wasn't many Dobro players. I could, it, when I was playing, I could count them on my hands. I mean, there wasn't, there was about, when I started about seven uh, that were really out there recording all the time and it, it wasn't many more, but I went to Nashville. The nurses made so much money that uh, I said, well, I'm going to be a nurse. So I went to Nashville and worked as a nurse. And I thought, you know, um, that's not what I'm here for. So uh, one one day I'm a nurse, at working as a nurse, and I called directory and I get J.D. Crow's number. And uh, and back then they had a thing called a Watts line that uh, was long distance for cell phone, and it got charged to the hospital. So I slipped <laughs> back into a doctor's uh, uh, recording station there, and I get directory and and I get the old voicemail on this. I call this number in Lexington. I knew where JD was, and I get this little scratchy voice. I dare talk to JD. Gets yeah. a little scratchy voice. I'm thinking I've got the wrong number because this sounds like some little old lady that's answering on the other <laughs> end. And uh, so anyway, I get home that night, and uh, it was it was a bad day. I, that's why I called. I was going to fish a little bit, so uh, called JD up from home and. Get, and it was him. He calls back on my voicemail with that little voice. And so I called JD and we talked and he knew who I was because Richard Bennett, who's uh, plays with me now in the band flashback, Richard and I were friends and Richard had been up. JD was retired and Richard and him were playing. So JD says, well, I've heard of you, um, through Richard. And, and that made me feel pretty good that maybe I had a chance and, and then the next thing was, J.D. says, you know, I never really liked Dobros that much. And and I said, really? <laughs> you know, so I'm shot. And uh, he says, yeah, ever since Josh came into Flatten Scruggs, it knocked Earl out of an extra banjo break. I mean, that's the only way <laughs> banjo players would look at it. I mean, if 10 breaks aren't enough for a banjo player. So. But, J- <laughs> but J.D. says, you know, Jerry Douglas came in and played, and, and I really liked what he did. And said, uh, I used to be all about fiddles, but uh, said, I like Dobros now, and I want you to come up and and, uh, and play on my record and, and make a long story short. The funny thing is I went up and uh, we picked, and the record I was supposed to play on didn't happen for two more years. And J.D., I was there the whole time, and he never told me I was hired. And the funny thing is our bass player had been there through Crow's retirement before. So the bass player had been there like four years longer than me. So we're driving down the road one night and I said something to JD and JD turned around and he goes, now Phil, back when I hired you, uh, we talked about that. And I said, back when you hired me, he goes, yeah. And I said, really, when did you hire me? I said, you never <laughs> told me I was hired. And he goes, well, you know, back when I hired you. Well, our bass player's driving, he looks over and he says, uh, oh, my gosh, you've never hired me. And J.D. looked over. He goes, yeah, I haven't have. I went back to reading reading the <laughs> newspaper. So when we left Crow's band, I was the only one that eventually had been between me and Kurt that plays, plays with me now in flashback. Uh, we left, and it was funny because we were talking. And, and uh, when we turned in our notice with J.D., we went with wildfire, you know. And uh, that's a funny story I'll tell you in a minute. But uh, – 
you know, Kurt says, you know, I was in that band 16 years. He never told me I was hired. And <laughs> I said, well, you know, the good thing about it, Kurt, is he, he always got a paycheck, didn't you? And he says, yeah. And I said, well, I guess you probably were, <laughs> you know. So, but J.D. was one of the coolest guys and still one of my best friends. Uh, he called me the other day. This is how Crow is. I got Crow interested in Beavis and Budhead when we played in the band. <laughs> And I would be in my hotel room and the telephone would ring and it would be JD trying to do a Beavis imitation. It may be three in the morning. No way. Yeah, JD is says, it's Beavis. You know, and he'd say, uh, uh, then he'd get in and he'd say, they're on the comedy channel. And I would say, gosh, JD, it's three in the morning. Yeah, I can't sleep. So. I would say, well, come on over. So he'd come over to my room, and he would sit in there, and J.D. would come in and watch Beavis and Budhead, and he would sit over and giggle like a little kid. And uh, then finally he would say, well, it's time for me to go to bed. <laughs> and he would, he would leave. But he called me here uh, Saturday. I was going through Lexington, and I wanted to check in on him, and I called him, and he wasn't home, but – get a voicemail back a little while later and it's Crota and Beavis. <laughs> so no yeah, he just, uh, he just was a really good guy. That was one of the, the, I, it was one of the, the least pressure jobs I've ever had, but I've had really good, good jobs with people I've played with. I've been real lucky. Nice. Nice. So around this time, are you still living in Nashville then or? Yeah, uh, I was, and what happened is I decided, you know, J.D. wasn't, he was he was an, a, nearly an hour farther from Nashville than he was Knoxville, so I just moved back to Knoxville, and uh, I actually played two shows with him as when I lived in Nashville, and then I moved here, and uh, it, it was easy because he lives right off I-75, and so do I, so... You get on that one road and you're there. But while I was in Nashville, I had a good time, though. I played with Grandpa Jones for a little bit, which was kind of, it was funny. I was the youngest guy in the band, and and uh, we played all kinds of really different things. But Grandpa went out and played bluegrass festivals, and he thought he needed a dobro. And I told Grandpa, he says, Grandpa says, well, I don't play banjo like Sonny Osborne or Earl Scruggs. And. I just probably need to add a band, you know, some more people around. And, and I remember saying, well, Grandpa, they're not out there about hearing you and comparing your banjo playing. You're Grandpa Jones. And uh, yeah. he, it was funny. We'd play festivals, and the crowds would be so-and-so. But when he would hit the stage, it would be like people would come in just because of the hee-haw fame. And uh, back when I was with Grandpa, a good little story is I had never met Mike Aldridge. And... Uh, we played in Dahlonega, Georgia, uh, one of the worst trips I ever had. had a, my car broke down two, two times on the <laughs> way down. Yeah, it was funny. I don't know what happened. But anyway, I get down there, and it's already been a bad day. But I knew the seldom seen was going to be on the show, and I would seen him so many times. Uh, and Mike Aldridge, to me, was like getting to watch Mike Aldridge was like watching the clouds part. And <laughs> guy comes out. With the Dobro, well, Mike, uh, the neat thing is we played right after the seldom scene uh, with Grandpa. 
which that's really a bad spot to be. You know, I mean, he's Grandpa Jones, but my gosh, you know, you, how, do you, how do you come up? I was coming up having to play after Mike Aldridge had done destroyed everybody uh, out there. So I walk up on stage, and there's Mike, and I come around the corner, and we're standing there face-to-face almost, and it was like couldn't talk to him, couldn't, I froze. And I finally said, hey, um, my name's Phil. I got my dobro on. I said, I, I play a dobro. I'm a dobro player. I mean, of course, it's on my neck. But Mike was so nice, and we got to be buddies uh, after that. But it, it was uh, – you know, that was one of the good things from that. And then I went up, I got a job with Vern Gosden, that was a big country singer. And okay. um, the neat thing, or not the neat thing, the funny thing is I was at a recording studio and a guy uh, that worked with Vern said, uh, got a job I might want you to audition for. Back then I sung a little bit, you know, and uh, can't now, but uh Sung a little bit, and they said Burns, you know, wanting to add somebody in the band, and and pays pretty good. And I thought, well, that's that's good. I might jump on that, you know. Says, well, what he's wanting is a backup singer, and I'm thinking, uh, okay. I and I didn't know much of Burns' stuff. I mean, I knew hit songs he had, uh, Chiseled in Stone, and stuff like that was big at the time. Uh, is it raining at your house? Those were. Been played on the radio. Chiseled and Stone had done one, I think, CMA song of the year a few weeks earlier. So Vern was pretty hot at this time. So uh, this was four o'clock in the afternoon. Okay. I'm at the studio and I said, Well, I'd like to audition, you know, try it out, see if I could do it. I, this would be good. Well, my friend said, Well, we probably won't have time to audition. We'll probably just have to call Vern and go from there because we're playing tomorrow. And I said, wow, okay, well, where did I meet you guys at? And they said, well, you need to meet us at 11 o'clock tonight. We're going out for four days. So it was already four, like four in the afternoon. So I have to get home, tell my wife I took a job, uh, go grab some clothes, try to find some clothes. Uh, because back then, I, my, all my stuff was nursing uniforms, scrubs, <laughs> blue jeans, I had to go find stuff. So I get all this worked in and I meet Vern for the first time on the bus and we sit and sing songs uh, as we go to the gig. And then the wow. uh, first show I get up, we go and we've got like a packed. I mean, this I, this wasn't what I was used to with bluegrass. You know what I'm saying? We're, you're used to seeing bluegrass crowds and you're saying, wow, we had a big crowd here. And then you go to these things, somebody like Vern Gosden is playing. I mean, he was doing some stuff with some big bands at the time. It's like, boom, it's, it's all on. And it was like, you know, it was cool. But the thing about it is the connection with fans is totally different than bluegrass. I mean, with bluegrass, I, I, I guess I'm a person I like. I like to visit and things with people, and I like to know people, and I like to remember their names. And I like to give people time because they're the ones that that make it possible for me to play. People that buy your records, people that suggest you. Bird was like this. You get done, and you went to the bus. You didn't get to go out. And I'd have people come to my shows that knew me that said, we're going to come out and see you. You couldn't, you couldn't visit with them. Everything was so tight. And when I got back into bluegrass, it was just so good to to be able to uh, go out after you're done and and visit with your fans and get that family again. So uh, I don't I don't ever 
you know, I, I think everything happens for a reason. And I'm so glad that things worked with me the way it did where I got to come back over and play bluegrass. And ma- nice. mainly because mainly cause I was a bad backup singer. <laughs> 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 that gig didn't last long. I couldn't do it. Well, how did you like, it sounds like um, from a lot of these stories, you spent a lot of your, your career kind of traveling on, on the road, huh? And, and, uh, and, and how, how is that life on the road? How it's, was it for you? It's different than people think. Uh, with, like with Vern Gosden, here's the big difference. We, we went from tour buses to uh, vans when you went over to Bluegrass. It was a different thing. But the thing that I tell people, and, and it's been like this with bands. I mean, I helped start the Wildfire in Band Grass Town. The flashback I've got now, I mean, I've been, you know, one of the co-founders of that stuff. And that's, that's so much that what people don't understand, it's not so much about finding the people who are the best pickers, which I've been lucky. I've been with some of the guys that, uh, I mean, they're undoubtedly some of the best in the world that play, uh, that uh, always help to make you do your job. But the traveling people don't realize, you know, you've got just a few minutes there on stage, usually 45 minutes and stuff. And you've got 23 hours, well, say 20 hours and stuff of traveling roads and stuff with guys. And if you don't, if you don't have guys in there that are good, good people that uh, have got your back, I mean, people that if, uh, you know, people that if you leave your instrument or forget to pick your CDs up somewhere, they'll bring them on to the van for you. It's that kind of, that kind of stuff. Everybody watches each other's back. And the thing funny is, uh, of, of all the bands I played in, and I'll, I'll kind of give you a history of my bands real quick. First band I was ever in was, was and I mentioned the Knoxville Newgrass Boys. Then we had a band later local called New Dawn that did pretty good. Then, you know, went with Grandpa Jones, went with Vern, uh, J.D. Crow, then Wildfire, then Grasstown, then the Whites. And then, you know, the band I'm in now. And the funny thing about it, I mean, with, with the exception of Grandpa Jones, because most of those guys are passed by now. But all of us, even back to my first band, uh, we're all still real good buddies. Hmm. And uh, matter of fact, the guy that used to play guitar in my first band, uh, we actually went and did a little show here the other night around town. A uh, little private thing. So nice. it's good. We, 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 we've all stayed really tight and and that says a lot because what's important is when it's all done, uh, it's the friendships you have and stuff. I mean, I want to play good music and everything, but uh, and and that's real important. But I also want to be around people that I like being around and people that that support you and and you know, there's not you there's not you have good nights and things feel good and and you like guys to to come by and say, man, this is a good job tonight or whatever. But, mm-hmm. you know, I always used to, the thing that a lot of people miss that I used to really pay attention to is like when I was in a band situation, it meant a lot more to me if somebody come by and said, man, the band sounded really good tonight. That sounded, that was better to me than somebody said, you played good tonight because your whole mission is trying to make that unit sound good, uh, making the whole unit. And, Something Jerry Douglas told me once, I know we're talking about Jerry a lot, but Jerry 
something Jerry told me that made a lot of sense is we were talking one time. And Jerry was talking about his his bulletin board that people had uh, was talking about, I guess, a uh, paper airplane album and said, well, there's not enough Dobro on that. There's not enough, you know. And Jerry, you know, Jerry was talking, said, he said, my God, we had layers and layers, which there is. But Dobro players want more. Dobro players just keep wanting. <laughs> and Jerry told me, and, and, and it made a lot of sense. I've thought a lot about this. Jerry said, you know, when, when I think about what I do now and and where I'm at and things I've got and things I've been able to do, he says, I think about that, that little girl standing over there playing the fiddle, which was Allison. And he said, my job is to make her sound good when we're doing her thing. And and he does that so good. And then it's it's just like this. When Jerry wants to do his own thing to express himself, he's got the Jerry Douglas Band and Earls of Lester. And uh, that's the whole thing is on the road. I've always just wanted to try to work to make who I'm playing with, whether it be um, a unit where we're all partners or whether it's somewhere I'm a side man, like in the White situation uh, or Dale and Bradley. I just wanted to make... Make them sound good because, you know, that's – I've always told uh, a lot of my students, if you're up on stage playing and people are – you've got somebody over here that's a really good singer and everybody's just looking at you while you play. Uh, I mean, dobro players will do that. Dobro players, if you're a dobro player, they just tune out the rest of the world. They'll <laughs> zone in on you. But if you're up there playing and you've got, like, everybody looking at you when something – a singer's going – you know, you're, there's something going on. You're either overplaying that singer, you're playing too loud, you're too busy and stuff. And with me, I've always, and I know we were talking about traveling on the road. I, I guess I've got into something different here. But oh, it's great. It's, no. it's, it's always been to me, whoops, look at me, I hit my cord. <laughs> it's always been to me about listening. I would always learn words to songs so I would know where the words end. And my thing was to fill in something that fit moods of songs. Or if you know the lyrics, uh, it makes it easier to play the melodies because I always wanted to play play the melodies. So what I always paid attention to is when, when someone's singing, I knew exactly how they phrased it. And, and I would find, just like Dale Annie, you don't learn this overnight. You, you learn this from playing on the road with people. You learn how they phrase things. And it gets to be that you're really thinking out of the same brain a lot of times. And what I'll do is, like with, say, with Dell Ann, here's a difference in female singers and male singers. I mean, and the whites, you know, girl singers. Uh, when I went with those bands, songs immediately are in different keys than what they were with guys. You're playing an A and B, you get with females, and you're playing a lot in D and E and F and stuff. Hmm. Now, the thing is, with a dobro, I always tried, you know, I don't want to walk on people if I'm playing something under. So I would find out that I was having to change my the octaves I played in. Whether if it was somebody that had a uh, baritone-like voice or what, I would play feels sometimes that were a little higher where they don't sound like people sing in unison. You know how bad that mm-hmm. sounds. Uh Something to compliment, but in a different frequency. And that's what is a big thing is a lot of times with your backup, you have to really think about your frequencies a little bit, where you're going to play. If your singer's got a high voice, I tend to play on lower strings 
Uh, if it's a uh, guy that's a baritone voice singer, say, uh, um, I've always sung with, I played with guys that sing high like Steve Gully, but he's still got that area in there. You learn people's area, you stay mm-hmm. off of them. And I work real hard to find the gaps, play the gaps. Uh, JD had told me one time, if you're doing a fill, a fill in or something, if you've got like, if a note is say 10 spaces, or something. Okay, if you, let's say if you got 10 marks, if your vocal ends on, say, a four, the fifth mark you need to be playing. Fifth, sixth, seventh, if it comes back in on eight. What it is, is every, every beat has to have something happening. And if and if it's not, then it's got to be a, a really cool designed space because I think that as much as notes in music uh, the the absence of notes sometime, if you place that absence or that spot at the right time, is as good as a as good as a good note. And sometimes one note that's played at the right place with the right tone and the right inflections better than a whole flurry. And 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 so much depends on the songs you're playing. I mean, you know, it's there are songs if you're playing a gospel song, you really can't play uh, Choctaw Hayride type uh, licks in there but then when you're playing fiddle tunes it's hard just to play you know yeah. so, much, so much depends on what you're doing you know yeah, and i'm yeah. sorry i got off subject <laughs> i know it's this is all great you're gonna love... you're gonna edit anyway oh no that this is great man i'm loving it well why don't we take a break and let let them listen to a, a track off one of your albums uh i know we got about uh a few tunes here what uh what do you what do you want well, to have them listen to? I tell you uh, one, and I can tell you stories with songs. Uh, Moon Racer is uh, off Slide Effects. That's a tune I wrote. Uh, I like that song a whole lot because of Andy Left, which is Mandolin Break. On that, he's just played the wildest Mandolin Break, and oh, wow. Andy's Andy's one of my favorites. He's just a monster, and he come into play and he looked after he did this solo and says, let's have it again. I said, no, man, you're done. We're not cutting. That's, that's the one I need to keep. <laughs> but moon racer is kind of funny. Uh, I got the, I got the title of that. I mentioned to you, uh, off tape. I, when I was little, I, I want to be an astronaut. I was way too big to fit in a capsule, but I still wanted to do that. <laughs> and, uh, so I, 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 col- I collect, I've collected space stuff through the years. I've got all kinds of things. I've been in space. I've got flags. I've got coins. That is so uh, cool. I've just got, I've, I really liked that stuff, and I still collect a lot of old memorabilia. But uh, I wanted to write a tune, and, uh, and I was thinking about space. Matter of fact, on, on the album, on that album, I got another tune I wrote called Sea of Tranquility, which is the name of the spot where the first moon landing of Apollo 11 hit. Uh, oh, cool. So that's where I got the title. Some people think it's an ocean. It's actually a place on the moon. <laughs> so this tune here, Moon Racer, I wanted to include moon, but mm-hmm. uh, one of my movies growing up was uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Everybody watched it Christmas. And there was a line that Rudolph went to see that uh, that – was going to approve whether they could stay on the island of misfit toys. His name was King Moonraiser. Uh-huh. So I thought at the time I w- there was a movie I'd saw called Moonraker. That was another big movie. And I thought, you know, if I can put three titles together uh, and, and put some of my stuff I like about space moon, 
it'll be a title that people will be familiar because people say, I've heard that somewhere, even though they haven't. Just kind of tied it in. So we wound up naming that tune Moon Racer. And uh, it's it's kind of a, a cool little tune. So nice. uh, hope you hope you guys like it. Yeah, yes. And this is off the album Sound. It's off slide. It's off slide effects. Slide effects. And that that album was uh, uh, voted. Uh, it won instrumental album of the year in two thousand and five at the IBMA. So I was real nice. proud of that. Nice. Here it is, Moon Racer. <laughs>
I got a real good story. <laughs> I don't know if I'd, I'd tell, but I'll tell you, it's funny. Uh, it's when I met Josh Graves the first time, uh, I'll, I'll tell you this real quick, but uh, uh, he played. I was I, I hadn't been playing long, and I the only two that I knew of Josh's was shucking the corn. I had learned it real good, okay? Yeah. So uh, we go to meet, uh, go see Josh at night here in town, and, and like I said, I'd only played on stage maybe two times. This guy was my hero, Josh. So back then, I, as usual, I laid out of school on Friday because Josh was there. Josh was there at eight, eight o'clock. But for some reason, I need to lay out of school. <laughs> Made no sense. So back then, I had hair. So if I went and got a haircut and all, and I go, I go over to meet Josh, and and uh, it's real funny. Somebody says Josh just came in. So man, I freaked. I run to the bathroom, make sure my hair was good. Like is Josh asked me if I wanted to come up and play a tune. With him and them. I mean, this is Josh Graves. I've been playing just maybe just three months, maybe. So uh, we get up on stage, and Josh kind of puts me on the spot. I only knew I only knew shucking a corn and maybe some forward rolls. I didn't know I didn't know but one one or two songs. Yeah. So I Josh asked me. He said, "What do you want to play?" And act like I had a whole bunch of knowledge. I said, "I don't know. Let me think." And then I said, <laughs> uh, "I don't know." Uh, uh, how about shucking the corn? <laughs> we played that one, and, and it was a funny thing we got done. And Josh goes, well, let's play another one. And I said, no, I will go listen to you play. I was out of tunes. <laughs> so that was a, a funny story on Josh. But a, but a cool thing that happened is later on, Josh, I guess life takes you where you're supposed to go, you know. And uh, when I was a nurse, I worked at a rehab hospital in Nashville. And uh, Josh got really down and was having problems, you know, with everything. And everybody was online. They was trying to find a way to get Josh out to the festivals to play. And uh, they was trying to raise money for a van and everything. Well, being a nurse and all, I realized, just like I have here being sick, picking's not what it's all about. Josh had more issues than that going on. So I called, I called his wife up and... Uh, we talked, and I said, what kind of problems is Josh having at home? That was my concern. It wasn't him. We, we had already been lucky enough to get to see Josh play, and at this point, it wasn't about being greedy to see the guy play anymore. It was about making life good. And she said, you know, Josh has problems getting in the bathroom. The doors aren't wide enough, and and he can't get around the house. And he has doctor's appointments. We've got steps and uh, so being a nurse, I went back to where I used to work in Nashville and, and I called, I was living, I was living in Tennessee, but I called a bunch of people out there that I worked with who were occupational and uh, occupational therapists and physical therapists. And uh, I got talking to them and I said, you know, we got to figure out something on this. So anyway, we got a fundraiser going on online and uh, raised a bunch of money and met a couple of carpenters during that time. One guy oh, nice. lived up north. Anyway, we got the money and the occupational therapist uh, designs and all, and they went in Josh's house with this money and built him a wheelchair ramp all the way to his driveway. Uh, got Lowe's did some donating, our Home Depot, put a, a handicapped shower in his house, widened his doors, and nice. everything. And I went down to see Josh and they were just so thankful because this is what they needed. 
Uh, but the funny story that goes with that was, uh, you know, Josh had lost both legs at that time. So I bring a picture to Josh that I had had since I was a kid. And I said, uh, Josh is here in the bed and uh, we're just over overlooking all this stuff. I mean, it was really good what the, the carpenter had done such good work. And didn't char- the carpenter, I meant the didn't charge a penny. He came oh, down. Uh, he was a dobro player. The only thing he wanted to do was to be able to be around Josh. So uh, everybody donated stuff. We had all the money. This cost nobody nothing other than their donations. And it was probably $10,000 worth of work that we got done for, for well, with the donations we got, probably around $1,000. But wow. uh, I take his picture of Josh. He's in the bed. And I said, Josh, I want to get this autographed. And uh, he looked at it and he goes, my God, that's 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 old and what took you so long? And I wasn't thinking. I just said, Josh, I said, man, I said, it's hard to catch you off your feet, you know, to get you to sign something. He looked down, he goes, well, I'm definitely off my feet. He had no legs. Uh-huh. And, and uh, I didn't mean it like that, but yeah. Josh was so funny. Josh started laughing. But uh, I remember they were so thankful uh, about the people that were involved. And I don't say, you know, I don't say that saying, oh, I got this done. I, I was able, as I guess where life put you, where it put me to be a nurse. And uh, mm-hmm. sometimes you don't know where all that stuff leads. But I think being a nurse connected me with seeing the side that was really important more than him being able to get to the festivals. So the money that originally started to try to buy Josh a van became, let's do a thing because Josh isn't going to play that much, but he's got to get around, be able to get around his house and yeah. all. And I, and I think everything we did made his life a lot better, you know, from that. So it was really a good turnaround. And also during that time, I was able, before he got sick, to organize with friends at Spigma. I think 2001, maybe, we had a Josh Graves tribute. And it was funny. I call, just started calling people. And the next thing I knew, everybody came. Mike Aldridge came down to Nashville. We, uh, Jerry Douglas, uh, there's a video of all these people on YouTube, but we had, I think we had 66 Dobro players on stage. Uh, I invited everybody that were the people you know, and everybody came. I mean, everybody came. And we had all these Dobro players, and we gave Josh a, a, a plaque and, and uh, let him get his recognition. And it was just, it was neat to think of a guy you start out with and, Got you up on stage to play one tune. That I mean, it helped me so much. It helped me so much getting to know him as a kid because he inspired me to want to play. And it was neat later on to think of I could do something back to help uh, in some way. So it's just a big circle, you know, big circle. I have so many people. I tell you this: the the main reason I post about my health on Facebook, if I don't, if I if I go a few days, if I go to Vanderbilt. I have, I'll have a hundred and something private messages. How you doing? How you doing? How you doing? What's, and it's, it just goes back to this music. People are so caring in this. I mean, country people make so much money going out and doing stuff, but I don't think you can put a price on this stuff. I think the value, goes, you know, you, you make a lot of money playing country, but I know a lot of those guys who are big stars and they're flat broke now. But these people that play bluegrass, you, you've always you've always got people that's there for you, and uh, it's just uh, is the best decision I made musically is to 
staying here and keep trying to reinvent myself a little bit. The first really good guitar I ever got, and this is a good a good story, 1982 World's Fair, uh, the Whites played, and Jerry had just got his RQ Jones, and I saw it. I wanted one like it. So Jerry, uh, we get this. Jerry orders me my first guitar. It costs $800, RQ Jones. <laughs> oh, wow. And... Uh, Anyway, Jerry uh, wrote me a note back. He says, man, he said, I've been on RQ about this guitar, telling him what, you know, we want. So anyway, I wind up, I get this guitar, and it's identical to Jerry's, except mine had a bound fingerboard on it. Jerry's is unbound. These things were sisters. So during the World's Fair, uh, we got this order done, and I went down to Jerry's house and picked it up, and it was just really awesome. And that's the guitar I kept uh, up to the time I was married, and I told you I quit playing. Uh, I, I didn't ever want to sell that guitar, and a friend of mine, I let him borrow it because I wasn't playing, and he come back, and he said, I want to buy that. And I said, it's not for sale. Well, what would you have to have? But I thought, well, I'll just shoot him a big number because it's not for sale. You know, most people say a million dollars, you know. I quote him out of price, I mean, which is, I don't know, maybe $2,500, which was bad back then. And he goes, okay. So he bought my guitar. As the circle goes, he got out of playing. And then this guitar, Jerry Douglas, rebought it. So Jerry owns this guitar now that uh, oh, that wow. uh, he helped me get. So uh, uh, it, it, was kind of, it was kind of, you know, funny. But that was, I had that one. That was a really good guitar. And then after I quit, I came back. I, I had a Bobby Wolf. Mine, I mentioned it was number 17. It was a walnut guitar. It's out in Washington State now, the last I heard. And the reason I sold it is of a company called Rich and Taylor that had just started. And uh, J.D. Crow had a banjo, so they wanted to hook me up a dobro. So I was playing some of the Rich and Taylor dobros at the time. And... Uh, didn't didn't really like them very much. Couldn't get them to sound right. And anyway, uh, at that time, I uh, had a buddy who was the guy really at the very beginning, a guy named Richie Owens, that went in at Gibson, and Gibson bought Dobro under Richie. Richie's the one that scared everybody to death and said, you can't use the word Dobro, we'll sue you. And everybody's still scared. Richie's been gone 20 years from there. So that don't, and plus, Gibson, Gibson don't make Dobros no more. They're not going to. Uh, it's a done thing. Finished. Uh, matter of fact, I've let my contract. Uh, we legally separated here not too long back because Gibson's not going to build Dobros or banjos anymore. Hmm. And uh, so anyway, I got in with Gibson, and my Gibson was wasn't very good. The first one I got, this was for, we were doing signature stuff. So I played a festival and saw Tim Shearhorn and Tim says, uh, you need to try one of my guitars. And I, I knew all about, about this. So Tim says, well, this is my personal guitar. Tim's always got a personal guitar <laughs> till he finds one that he builds and he likes better and then he'll sell it. So he said, this is my personal guitar. I still remember it was serial number 90, uh, dash a, Tim put put serial numbers with letters beside them, meaning he still built a number 90, but these others were guitars to the side. Somebody had 90, but A meant that that was his guitar. That was a keeper. It, it was out of sequence, but the letter stood that it was either given to an artist or him. So he let me play his guitar, 
and it just it 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 made me feel like I uh, had learned to play again because some instruments I think you can outplay them, and not that I'm a great player, but you can outplay an instrument sometimes. Things that won't respond, you go up to hit a top string that needs to ring for three notes, and it rings one, and it's like it's just not. It you you can outplay them. Then some of them that you you play when you get aggressive, you get off, and then it's all out of tune. It's just. Well, oh, Tim took my my uh, first dobro, which was uh, it's funny because it was actually the Gibson prototype. I probably had the only dobro that had the word Gibson in it uh, hmm. before dobro. This one had Gibson, and I think T- Taylor wound up with this one. But um, I played that, and I didn't didn't like it. Didn't like the sound. And I saw Tim, and I said, "Man, will you set this guitar up for me?" And he said, yeah. I said, well, I don't have any. I saw a guitar I got. He said, I'll loan you one. So he gives me 90A, uh, his personal guitar. So we come back to win. We go to Winterhawk, and uh, Tim's there. And Tim says, I got your guitar fixed. And I said, uh, well, first of all, to me, it ought to be good news, but it's bad news. Because bad news is I knew, well, Tim's getting his guitar back. <laughs> so I said, how's it sound? Tim, as, as usual, Tim, well, that sounds like a dobro. You know, it's like, oh, gosh, okay. So uh, I get it, and I played a little bit, and Tim put magic in it. It sounded good, but it didn't sound like that shear horn. I said, yeah, uh, do you mind if I play this shear horn this one last set at Winterhawk? And Tim says, well, I've got to leave. Uh, and I'm thinking, well, he says, you take that guitar and you keep it at your guitar. And, uh, uh, he says, I'll build me another one. So I was just really blown away. I I got this shear horn and, uh, anyway, with the shear horn, I kept it a while and, and Tim told me, he says, Hey, I've got a new, new design getting ready to come out. And I said, what is it? And he said, it was called an L body. It's like, what's that mean? You know, I didn't know what it was. And he says, "Well, I'll tell you what. You're gonna like it when we get it. It's gonna be, it's gonna be really different." And uh, I went down to Hardy's shop, uh, the guitar shop, and I had this other guitar. And I said, "Man, how, what do we do?" And he says, "Well, let's figure something out. See if you don't want to play more." You know, this was early days. He said, "Do uh, you know uh, sell it and you know just whatever it gets or give it to me? What you have an L body." And I got this L body, man, and it was just like no comparison. So I had that. And then along the way with guitars, I mean, Gibson built me my signature model, which uh, Gibson's not building anymore, uh, those I mentioned. But that guitar was was really souped up. Tim took it and souped it up. That thing sounded really good. It, it, it didn't sound like a didn't sound like a Gibson. And uh, but anyway, we, we they they built they built good stuff. Uh, in my signature line, they were all really good guitars. They were all just lacking in the setup end. Uh, they changed so many setup guys, and I tell people, I'd say, man, that guitar's built good. It's solid wood. It's uh, all the it's baffle. It's everything's good in it. Uh, just buy you one and take it to Tim. You know, take <laughs> it to the genie and let him. You know, so uh, I played my Gibson for a little bit, and and when the flood happened at Gibson and I knew Nashville, I knew that they weren't going to start. Uh, I had, I, I ordered me another share horn. So when I've got now and, uh, I got this thing in the mail, uh, not the mail, went to Tim's and picked it up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 
The funny thing is the first thing I ever played on it, we recorded, uh, and it's actually on YouTube now, went to a buddy mm-hmm. of mine, uh, uh, Steve Thomas. He used to play with the Whites. He produced my last record. We went to his house. He set up uh, one little simple microphone, and I just wanted to see what it sounded like. And I played I'll Always Love You. It's Dolly Parton tune. Just see what it sounded like. Well, anyway, we, we went ahead. It's a track actually on YouTube now if people want to look it up. But uh, it, the good thing about it, it's a raw track. It's not edited uh, up. It's not had everything. So it shows you what that guitar sounds like, and that's what I wanted. So I, I my story kind of ends there. That's the guitar I've got now that I play all the time. Uh, it's uh, the thing I like about the thing that with this guitar that I really like is when you play places and people come up and they'll say, "Man, that that guitar sounded good today. That the tone of that the guitar really sounded good. It makes you just want to keep them, you know." And uh, but there's so many good ones out there and stuff. Uh, a lot of folks don't know this, but uh, I, I'm, I'm I know. You know, I don't know how much it, it, it wasn't advertised much, but as far as signature guitars, <coughs> before I went with Gibson, mm-hmm. I went with Beard. Okay. And Paul built me, and this was before Mike Aldridge or any of that. Uh, I had a guitar, and and I think there's a picture on my website. There was only three built, and it was called a filibuster. Really? And pa- yeah, and Paul Bilties. I think I got. I know I've got one on my website, which uh, I'll give the address in a minute on that. But you could look at it. It was a walnut guitar, and it was really awesome. Really, because Paul is such a good builder mm-hmm. and uh, such a good guy. He's one of the uh, one of the. If you have a list of the good guys and the great guys and the super greats, Paul's the super great. He's just uh, he's all about it. This guitar was really good, and about the time we we were signing our deal, and like I said, this was before Mike and Jerry or them had did anything. Hmm. Um, this I don't I don't remember the year, but uh, Gibson approached me and said we want to do a signature guitar, and we're going to sell this many, mm-hmm. and and it was like you know when you're a kid, you're sitting there looking at your little Gibson logo and everything, and you got this company that comes at you, and it's like wow, this is this is, I guess it's like being a baseball player and maybe Wilson or something like that or Spalding wants you to, it's just, it was, it was an automatic because my friend Richie Owens was there and, and I knew they were going to make it a priority and, and they sold, we sold a bunch of those guitars. I mean, it was unreal, the royalties. And then it got where they were changing so much. I would have all these orders and they couldn't couldn't fill them because people would want them and they would want a guitar right now. I'd say it's going to take three months and sometimes they would go ahead and order and then three months would come and six months and this guitar wasn't ready and I'd say, look, I'm going to... So it it become an availability thing there. But right now, I mean, my shear horn is what I really like uh, okay. a lot. But I will say, uh, first, people I've said this to, I've got something getting ready to to go on pretty soon uh with with something different and uh it'll be it'll be something that'll be uh really good but be really affordable and i have a lot of players that come in there used to be a gap on guitars you could if you wanted a there was not really a mid guitar they was super junk and then four thousand dollars 
you know, uh, to start getting into some of the, the beards and all. I mean, you had you had the Regals, and this is not slamming anybody that made all these. I mean, I'm just talking about, like, play and how they're made. You had all your guitars, you know, your Johnsons, your 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 cheaper Eagles and all. And then mm-hmm. if somebody wanted something and come to me and said, we want a guitar that might be, you know, a couple of grand or a little less, I couldn't find them because of that big jump so we're we're getting we're working on something uh, with a company now that is going to be it's a big company middle of the road uh guitar uh, bigger bigger body guitar uh baffles sound post good nice. parts but but very affordable because everybody you know everybody plays a dobro it's like i, I realized this early on Everybody don't need everybody don't need the same guitar you're playing on stage because it's a hobby with a lot of people. No more than if I'm a weekend driver, uh, if I want a nice little hot rod, maybe something in there I can get that I don't have to go buy uh, a hundred thousand dollar Mopar or something like that. So this guitar will fill a hole, you know, for people. I think you'll have to let me know and I'll put a, a link up because I get. I get questions all the time, you know, and I'm in the same boat, like mm-hmm. trying to, like, well, you can get this or you can get this, and there seems to be that, well, that big jump there, you know. I tell, I tell you what, the prototypes on this guitar, the only thing that's going to, this is fun. I'm, I, I'm just straight up with people. The only <laughs> thing that's going to be a problem on this guitar is the price is so good on them that people, you know how people are. If you bring something in and say, man, I got this guitar, wow, that's nice. You know, how much yeah. you pay for it? $10,000. I got to have one. But if you told me that same guitar, said, man, I paid $2,000 for this, immediately it devalues for some reason, even though it's not. So the thing of it is, is these guitars uh, are going to be something when people play them, they're going to think they cost a whole lot more because the prototypes, uh, we're looking at maybe, uh, they're thinking maybe by the NAM show that they'll have these. Uh, we, I've already drew in designs and all, and they're working on these and, uh, the prototypes are just really, are really going to be good, but I can get with, a, uh, tell you the company is we we're still in the middle of signing and yeah. stuff, but you know, with me, it's like this, I've got, I've had good guitars and everything like this. And this is a guitar that I will play some, uh, not an exclusive, but I'll play some because the whole thing is exposing people to stuff that they will buy. And I think by, by playing it some and people hear it and stuff and like it, uh, it's, it's a thing like at my, my age, I'm going to be 55 in, in, in March. And it gets, at this point, you start looking at things like, you know, investments, and things like that, and and it's nice to be able to to uh, to be able to get some decent royalties off things you play and stuff. But I don't want something that I play just because I got my name on it. I want to make sure this time that it's a guitar that if I want to grab it and play it, I feel good with it because it's a good guitar. You know, it may not be exactly like my Shearhorn. We're talking thousands of dollars difference, but I want people to look at it and say, wow, I can't believe it's that price. And, uh, and it sounds as good and is built as good. Yeah. And, uh, that's what we're doing. I'm wanting to just, I, I, I wanted to find a spot that's not, uh, uh, 
because the pro the pro guitars are covered. Everybody knows to go to Paul Beard and go get whatever or Tim or whoever. But I just wanted to fill that void where people aren't getting things that are, you know, if you come in and trying to learn to play and you've got something that's not a good guitar, you, you really, it, it handicaps you a little bit because you don't have this, you're not on the same page. Yeah. And I hope with these guitars, uh, I'm, in, I'm set up right now where uh, I'm, I'm planning like Mike Aldridge did to be able to test play these these that are sold a big portion of them cool. and uh anyway we'll see what happens with it yeah uh, you know uh but uh life goes on and and uh, and you know i'm gonna play what i like yeah and right now the, this year horn i've got is uh it's got to feel feel a lot like me and uh so i'm real content with it but that's my that's my guitar history on uh things and, and on my website uh it's a uh, www.unclephilonline, just like it sounds, unclephilonline.com. And I think, I think if you go on there, I'm trying to remember, I think I've got some pictures of stuff, of my guitars uh, on one page. And uh, if not, you can go to my Facebook page. I think I've got, uh, I can't add friends because Facebook cuts you at a certain amount, but you could still, I've got mine public. So you could still go in there and look. And I've got okay. one page that's got pictures of uh, all the guitars, uh, including that filibuster that you nice. can look at. So that's my guitars. Nice. Well, why don't we? Um, that's great stuff, man. And and uh, I know we got a lot of questions on Facebook, you know. And, and I know that you've, in, in addition to you being such an inspiration musically, I know that you've really inspired a lot of people uh, to with what you've went through health-wise the last uh, few years. And uh, do you want to talk about any of that? Sure. I, yeah. I really like, I always like to talk about that because some people are so secretive about things. And I'm so glad that I found people when I was sick, first found that I was sick, that wasn't secretive because I needed answers. I needed to find out what to do. And anyway, in 2011, I'll, I'll, I'll condense this down. I, I'd been sick for a couple of years, and I was playing with the Whites. We played in Boston at the Joe Val Festival, and I was really sick that week. I'd been having uh, uh, just super fatigue. I was losing weight. Uh, I was always big, but I was losing weight. And uh, I was I, the worst thing is I was having night sweats. My night sweats were so bad. I'd wake up in the morning, and I could run my hand across my pillow, and water it would build. It would I would wreck water out, wow. and and it, and I would run fans. I still sweated. So I got I got looking on the internet, started putting in all my symptoms, and every symptom I had had Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, I guess what I need to do is back up and say I played with the whites. I was super sick, and I went home. And uh, and I went to a doctor. They thought I had pneumonia and stuff. So anyway, I had Googled and everything, all these symptoms that keeps coming up, Hodgkin's lymphoma. And uh, I was I was really worried about, you know, uh, this. But then when I start seeing it in writing, it's like, no, I don't have that. Even though I was a nurse, I was a cancer nurse. My last job, it was there. But I said, no, nah, that's, that's not what's going on. So anyway, make a long story short, I get a chest X-ray thinking I had pneumonia. Shows up lymph nodes, and uh, they call me in, and my doctor calls and says, "I want you to go meet with an oncologist." Which 
is, you know, cancer doctor. And I said, why? And he says, sounds like Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I said, eh, I don't know. So I go into my doctor and, and meet him. And, and uh, the funny thing about, about all this is uh, when I went in to him, we talked and uh, he said, uh, yeah, looks, that's what it looks like is going on. And I said, well, probably it could be something else, couldn't it? And he says, well, I've done, been a doctor 40 years. I've never seen it be something else. So anyway, they get real aggressive with me. It's like I, had, I went straight, met a doctor, had surgery the next morning. I had a big lymph node in my leg, a big knot that I didn't know what it was. And they take that out and, and check. Well, anyway, it, one of my friends I went to high school with, he's, a, he's an MD now, so he's in the system. Weird people you go to school with, how they, you know, life brings you. So he, he looks at my record early. He calls me that night. It was supposed to be uh, a few days. He says, man, you've got, got lymphoma. Uh, said, your doctor will probably call you tomorrow about it. So we talk and. And, but it's funny when my doctor calls me. My doctor says, uh, "You know, good news and bad news." Said the bad news is uh, you do have cancer, uh, and said the good news is I'm going to be going through it with you. And I said, "Well, that's good because I, I want you to be my doctor." And he says, "No, you don't understand. I got diagnosed this morning too." So oh, my wow. doctor got diagnosed. See, Hodgkin's lymphoma is a blood cancer. There's three blood cancers, Hodgkin's lymphoma, multiple myeloma, and leukemia. My doctor was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, which is a blood cancer. So immediately I get started being a nurse. I Googled and everything, and I had all these people telling me what I should do, that I should should eat berries or I should go eat bark off of a tree or, or eat lemons and all. And I thought, well, you know, I can do all that stuff too if I need to. But what I got to do is I've got to read on the internet as a nurse, a medical person and see what's curing people. That's what I got to do because cancer don't sit around and wait for you to get a good answer. You got to get on it. And I looked and I saw what was going on and, and I said, I've got to get in and do something. So I had had six months worth of chemo and um, it, my cancer never went away. I mean, with Hodgkin's, it was everywhere. I had it, it just, it was just in a lot of areas. And um, anyway, I go in and uh, we we get six months and I'm supposed to be clear. Well, it, I, was, I was clear three months, came back. So anyway, it starts getting more aggressive. The doctor says, you know, the only thing bad is we've got, we're going to have to step up with some of the medicines. And I don't think, said, I don't think you can handle this. You know, some of these are going to be hard to handle. And I said, well, will it be easier to handle these medicines than it will digging up out of the ground and getting out of a casket? <laughs> and he says, well, I understand. I said, I won't, I won't, whatever, throw it at me. So I did this. It put me back pretty hard. Uh, but I, during this time now, I, I had to quit playing because everything just quit working. My hands quit working. Uh, uh, stuff called neuropathy. You lose all the feeling in your hand. I lost all the feeling in my hand. Started losing my memory. Couldn't remember how songs went. Uh, I, I, one time when I was sick, I picked my dobro up and tried to play, and it, it was like it was like sitting down in an airplane trying to fly it. It didn't make sense anymore. So I just said, I'm done, you know, I'm finished with this. And um, anyway, I had a, a, a thing called a stem cell transplant. And uh, 
when I had a stem cell transplant, that's supposed to totally get you well. It's pretty rough. Uh, one of the roughest things I can imagine is bone marrow stem cell. I was in isolation for for 30-something days, and they basically, what they do is they have to kill off all your blood cells to get you well. So your blood count goes from hundreds of thousands to zero. And the doctor, I remember the doctor said the people that survive these things are people that don't give up and try to keep going. Well, I was in isolation, but every night when the hospital wasn't full, it was, I don't know how I did it, but I would make myself get up and I'd walk where nobody was at with my mask and all that. And uh, anyway, 30, 33 days later, my doctor comes in and, you know, he's there every day, but he comes in on this day after my transplant. And, and at first, my blood count wouldn't go up. It stayed at zero. Well, it stays at zero. You're going to, you're pretty much dead because your bone, your bone marrow has been destroyed. So that was a big thing. I'm sitting day to day, you know, are you going to die or not? So we go through all this and he comes in, he says, it seems like everything did good. And said, I knew when I come in every morning and you were walking down the hall that she's going to get well. So, uh, Anyway, uh, I get discharged and I'm doing good. And six months later, uh, I go to have my last scan. And when I have my last scan, uh, I mean, I'm two-time survivor at this point, okay? Mm-hmm. I have my last scan and I, I, it's like, well, I told my wife, we're, we're done, finally done with this. We're finally, this is in the past now. And I'm, and I'm back picking too at that time. I went back uh, playing, which I'll tell you the story on that. And I mean, it's funny. But uh, I'm back picking, and we play. And anyway, by scan, they called me, and I said, yeah, this is good. It's going to be good news. They said, you know, we've got, we got some problems. So I go to my doctor, and my doctor tells me, uh, the funny thing about it is I walk in my doctor's office, and, and my other doctor, you know, had cancer. He's had to leave. I've got another one. So I asked my doctor, I said, what do you think, what do you think we need to do now? And he says, I don't know. He said, what, what, what suggestions do you have? And I thought, well, I, my suggestions, I want to get well. And, and he says, well, you know, the thing you need to do is just go home. You've, you've had a tough fight on this. Go home and, and just enjoy your life and stuff and just, you know, let things go and, you know, basically, basically give up. And I said, no, I'm not doing that. So I got on the phone. And uh, I knew I had Hodgkin's, you know, lymphoma. So I got on there and I Googled and I just Googled who's the best uh, lymphoma doctors in the United States. And the one that come up number four was at Vanderbilt. So that's 200 miles away from me. So I got in my car and I went down and I met her named Dr. Reddy. And, uh, And she put me on a new medicine for a little while and it got me in check where my cancer wasn't going bad, but my cancer was when when I got to her, it was it it wasn't good. I had it uh, it it was in it was in my brain, my underarms, my lungs, kidneys, stomach, uh, around my liver. It was everywhere. And she puts me on this medicine. Well, for the cool thing is, for three months she had me on this medicine and I come back for the scan and she's like, you know, she wasn't super way optimistic on everything, mm-hmm. but, but what was funny, she scanned me and she goes, it's not gone. It's stable. That's all we wanted. So there's a new medicine 
that is in clinical trials now. President Carter, Jimmy Carter, had just took this medicine and got well. And she said, we're taking people in on this trial. And I took that stuff, and I had three rounds of it, and all my cancer was gone. So, yeah, so I have been clear. I've been cancer free since October 26th of last year. And uh, I've got uh, three more infusions. I think three more. This October 6th, uh, and I I, I know I'm good. I have no symptoms. I have no cancer symptoms anymore. The only symptoms I have is medicine related. This medicine was research medicine. It had zero side effects when I started, and now it's got about a hundred. <laughs> uh. So, but but I have about seven or eight of them. One of mine's a hoarse voice. You probably hear that. Other one is just fatigue, and then a few other little things going on. So what's happened is uh, this drug come along at the right time, and during all this time, I've been I actually went like to juice a juicing diet back in in December of last year. Oh, cool. Well, since I've been sick, nothing's been no, none of this is cancer related, but I've lost a, like 150 pounds because I make I make myself healthy. So October 26th, I'm done. Uh, I've got this is the first time I've been told I'm done, but I really know I am because I always felt like you know cancer's back here looking over my shoulder. I don't feel that this time because I have no symptoms. So uh, anyway, I'm, 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 I looked at things that starting a new leaf, uh, flipping a new leaf. And you know what was neat is with my after my stem cell, the first show I played was uh, I joined Dale Ann and I played in uh, Boston at Joe Val. That was my first show back playing, and it had been my last show before I had cancer. I got to go back to where I stopped. And when I left there, it's funny because I, I, during my stem cell and all, I used to think about, gosh, the last place I played, that was it, that was it, and it wound up being my first. Uh, Isn't that something? But wow. something neat, something neat to do with all this. Anyway, like I said, 20, October 26th, man, I'm, I'm done. But uh, I was when I was in the hospital, I just didn't think I was going to get out. I had all kinds of time, and I made a little list out of people that uh, it was like, wow, I wish I had have called these people and played with them or, or something. I won't ever do this again, but I just made a little list. And when I got well, uh, I, that first time, the record company says, well, you need to do us another record. And I said, well, yeah. And they said, have you thought about a concept? And I thought, well, no, not really. You know, I hadn't thought about playing uh, well, he said, be thinking about it. So, you know, I got my list I'd made in the hospital of all these people, I like guess bucket list, and I started calling them, and every one of them played. Uh, nice. I don't, there's only one person that didn't, and it was because they were out, they were overseas. But these were people that come on my record that, uh, like people like Joe Diffie and and uh, well, John Cowan and Sam Bush. I mean, we had I, I got to sit there with John. I mean, those were my heroes watching the Newgrass Revival. And I got to sit there in the studio with John and Sam, and they're playing. And and then um, another thing I want to do, I mean, Rob and Jerry, you know, they're they're the front cutting edge guys. A lot of great players, but I mean, they were the ones that were winning all the stuff and things. And and uh, I so I couldn't bring in everybody. There's so many great Dobro players, but rather than do like a Dobro sessions thing, I said, well, I'm gonna do one song. 
that's got two guys, you know, uh, two other players, and and I called Rob and Jerry, so Rob and Jerry came and uh, played. Oh, and cool. uh, what's neat, I'll tell you this. I mean, this is stuff like musicians only know and everything. <laughs> but but what was so cool is Jerry Douglas. You know, everybody emails tracks around now, and Jerry is so he's. I mean, it just shows you a different world, I guess. Jerry sent me all these tracks of the same solos and stuff he played. I think like 30, 30 solos, wow. but, but he had put them, he had recorded them on different microphones <laughs> and listed which microphones he used. That's how into that Jerry is. I mean, every one of them was perfect, but it was just, I, I, I got to sit there and listen uh, to Jerry through all these microphones. And then it helped me. I thought, Hey, next time I go in the studio, that's what I'm using. You know, I mean, I know people's going to ask what microphones they were, but Jerry, uh, I mean, I, I think the best tracks we got, well, Jerry's stuff sounded good on anything. It sounded good on a paper cup, but he had recorded some tracks on a Royer mic and a, and a, and a U87 uh, and a, uh, I think it's a KM84, the way he had mocked them. And all, I mean, all of them sounded good, but could you go through and just listen? The bad thing about Jerry is it's all so good. If I'd have had three, it'd have been different, but he sends you all these tracks and they're just so good. <laughs> and I listened and I said, did it become not about what was a good track because they were all awesome? It came about like, man, that, that bike air really sounds good. But then, you know, so much of it's Jerry's hands. Uh, but that's the thing about it is when you got the same player with the same great hands, the same great mic, then it comes down to if you're playing the same instrument, then that comes down to microphones. And uh, I was real lucky I kept all those uh, just because, I mean, how many people do you get that Jerry Douglas sends you a bunch of different tracks with different mics? It, it was, I got, I, got, I got a good schooling on picking microphones. That. So, That's cool. It, That's so cool, yeah. Anyway, they, they came in. I had a lot of great players come in on this. And, and it was a lot of people don't, I guess, a lot of people got it what I was doing because it was called, the album was called The Next Move, meaning the next thing I'm going to do. And a friend of mine even did some cool graphic art. It's got a guy moving a chess piece on front. A lot of people think that's a photograph. That's a hand-drawn. Oh, and cool. uh, anyway, so we got that. And uh, it was just... Uh, so much, so much good stuff. One one good thing on I got uh, Steve Warner came on and recorded, and you you know Steve uh, got to go to his house and hang out. I mean I met, met Steve years ago, but during my illness, Steve got where he followed me all the time on Facebook, and he would write me. I mean a lot of people did, and kept telling me he said you to get well. You know we'll we'll work on some stuff. So I got to go to his house, and the funny thing about Steve Warner. And I know these are all stories. You can edit them, but some of them is going to be oh, things people great. will appreciate. Uh, Steve was Steve was a big bluegrasser. He, his daddy loved bluegrass, and Steve told me says, uh, "You know, my dad when I when I got to Nashville, my dad was all he was concerned about is me playing, getting to meet bluegrass people." And Steve told me says. Uh, I think Steve and him had won a Grammy for uh, Restless. It was a Mark O'Connor 
tune and they'd won the Grammy. And Steve said, I came back from the Grammys, told dad, said, dad, you know, got to go to the Grammys, got to do this. He said, his dad's first thing was, did you get to meet Bill Monroe? <laughs> it was like that. <laughs> so anyway, I, I go out, Steve and what's cool. Steve is, is he loves ice bluegrass, but he's got a, a, a real nice vintage, uh, 27 Dobro. Oh, cool. Really, really nice. Really sounded good. So uh, we go out there at the studio and hung out with Steve. You know, we, we recorded a song called Hole in the Earth that we did at his studio. And then Steve's like, man, just come in here and record. Let's have fun. So I got to play Steve's uh, uh, old uh, dobro on that track, which was good. I never could imagine getting to touch one of his instruments. <laughs> but I got to play this old 27 uh, on there. And it was real funny because when the album come out, Steve called me and and he had ordered some. I said, "Oh, you ain't supposed to order no albums. You know, you get them free." And he said, "Oh, my my dad found out about this and he's wanting them for the family because it was bluegrass had some bluegrass on it." But it's just funny. It's it's just funny how people are old school. And stuff, and yeah. uh, to go down and find out Steve was such a big bluegrass guy too, and he loves it. And if you look in country now, there's so many people that that are out there that were bluegrass people. I always say the people that I, when I listen to people that really catch me, uh, which I knew all these people were country, like I knew Vince were was bluegrass and all that stuff uh, and stuff. But mm-hmm. when a sound catches me. Uh, it's real funny. I can always look and find out these people's roots were usually bluegrass because the timing in the pocket is so different that those guys play. And I mean, it's like Skaggs. You listen to him play electric guitar and all his pocket is just different. It's uh, you can tell uh, Barty Stewart, uh, just all those guys, Vince. And then one of my buddies, Gene Johnson, that plays mandolin with Diamond Rio. He played with J.D. Crow when Keith Whitley was in the band hmm. and he plays, they play that pocket and it's something, it's just something, this music is so, uh, I, 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 there's just a big difference between those, these guys. I think that they go down and win American Idol and then the next week they're on a tour bus. These guys that get out and play these festivals and, and get to sit backstage and jam with Stuart Duncan and and uh, all these other guys. I just think they I think they learned something. And I can always tell on a record when I hear something. I say, man, let me Google this guy. But he had a bluegrass band. Usually did, you know. <laughs> That's so cool. Well, what are you uh, What are you doing these days? What What's your plans now? Well, uh, I've got a new band. Uh, What's funny is in 1990, in the early 90s, when I went with J.D., the the band at that time was a guy named Richard Bennett that I mentioned got me with J.D. Kurt, the guy that J.D. never hired, (laughs) played for 14 years, bass player. (laughs) And uh, then we brought a guy named Don Rigsby into the band, which Don's made a really good name for himself in music over the years, too. He's played with everybody. Well, back when I, my CD came out, we had a big CD release. And uh, at the time, I was just looking for people to put together because we they the record company calls me and they want to do a radio station. They want to do a CD release at a theater that seats like 1,600 people. And it's like, whoa, that's stupid. You know, we need to go, we need to, go to a uh, little gym or something, you know, for this. <laughs> So anyway, we just started putting talent together for this thing. And one thing is, I said, well, I'm going to call up all the guys that used to play in J.D.'s band. I mean, in 94, we did an album 
that our band, we always called that version of the band the Flashback Album, a flashback band because we did an album called Flashback, and it got a Grammy nomination in 94. So I call all these guys up and tell them, I said, man, we got a big theater. We're doing a CD release, and we'll see if you guys will go play. And uh, we go out there, and uh, and they all come. So we go up there and play, and it's like old time. So as soon as we got done, I, I called J.D. up. J.D. had re- basically retired, one of his many retirements. And uh, he said, I said, you just get out and play some shows with the old band. We'll call it J.D. Crow and and the flashback band. And J.D. says, well, you know, I'm so tired of playing and stuff. I don't like dealing with it. But said, if, if you guys want to bring me along, just kind of like I'm a side man where I don't have to book hotels and I don't have to do stuff and we'll just go out there and we'll just do it like we're partnership. And I said, Hey, that's good. You know? So I, I mean, I'm here. I'm, I'm, we're, I'm getting to be a partner with JD. So we're doing this. So we put, so we put flashback, JD Crow flashback together and we played for a while and JD got a little sick and stuff. And, and he called me and I got sick about the same time that JD did. My, my cancer came back. J.D. called me. He said, Phil, you know what we need to do? He said, it's really a time for things. And he said, I don't want, I'm not going to play anymore. Uh, I'm done. I'm really retiring this time. And I said, okay. And he says, you need to really look into life and see if this is what you want to keep doing, you know, because, you know, you've got, got a lot going on right now. And I said, well, I know, you know, J.D., I've thought about retiring and, and things and do something else. So, Anyway, I thought about it a little bit, and I called called the guys, and and JD had retired and and stuff, and I said, you know, I, I, ain't, I ain't I'm not done playing. I still want to play uh, a little bit. I mean, I physically some of my feelings come back, and I want I, I want to play. So I said, why don't we just keep playing? I mean, if you know, as long as we let everybody know that this is with JD's blessing that he's not quit. Or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I, we called J.D. up and said, J.D., we, we want to keep playing, and and we want to call ourselves, you know, flashback. And he said, man, that's good, you know. So we went ahead and we started on a record. And, I mean, we've not got to this part yet, but J.D. said he's probably going to come in and play on a couple of cuts. And that's going to be good for people listening. So they all these people said, man, I heard they had a fist fight, you know. They, they can find out we left as friends. And I don't know. He's retired. He, he Every time I talked to him, he told me he, he'd like to come and play a couple. But we've got this record about done. Uh, it's the I think it's the best thing that I've ever got to be part of. It, it sounds really good. Uh, we're going to be totally finished in January, and the record company street date will be first of March, but we'll have it out by then. And I have some of the studio tracks, of, I think three of them. I've released a couple on uh, on YouTube just to get people building a little bit about it. But uh, we're doing, our show's kind of neat. We're doing, I guess, Earls of Lester, what they do. You know, they're out doing Flat and Scruggs. And our show, because we were all New South guys. I mean, every one of us was 
unlike you know going in and doing something we were we're all we were all banned so what we're doing is our show we've got a lot of our material and then we we do a portion of our show that's a tribute to jd crow in the new south so we pop right in and we're doing you know uh cuts that's off the old home place album and stuff like that and and we've got guys i mean you'll never have they'll never be in my opinion i mean that's my favorite band the 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 new south uh i like boone creek too because jerry douglas was so busy then uh playing but but the new south the singing and tony rice and uh, being in there it just made a big difference now you, those guys you know they'll never be replaced in my opinion i mean i think if you look at this is me it's my opinion but i think if you look at you say well who's the best people you know i always say well there they were 1975 jd ricky skaggs jerry douglas tony rice and and that was uh, that's that's pretty big. So we do a lot of stuff. We've got guys like Richard Bennett, who's always listening to Tony, uh, plays a lot like him, sings a lot like him. Uh, just did Tony's big tribute thing. Richard was part of that. And then you got Don Rigsby, who sounds and sings so much. Uh, his inflection sounds a lot like Ricky and stuff. So our trios, we've we've hired a guy Stuart Wyrick. I've known all my life. And when we hired a banjo player, we went out and I said, I don't want to just hire a banjo player. We got to hire somebody that's, uh, that, that has listened to JD and not only picks similar to him. I mean, similar is the word because there's never going to be another one of him. Sure. But somebody that sings like him too. So we've come in and our trios and everything sounds real similar. So we're excited about it. So I'm doing that and I just, uh, to make life easier, uh, as of last week, I, I finished real estate school and all, and and my brother is over at a real estate company, a big real estate company in town uh, that basically does the whole town uh, and far. I mean, they're, they do a lot, and uh, it's he, he's you know he's the main guy there. So I'm gonna go work for him, but I'm not gonna actually do office stuff. I'm gonna. Uh, working for him is what, what I'll be doing is it will be called doing referrals. And I figure I know enough people uh, through my business that if they'll come to me, if they're needing a house or whatever, I just turn them over to him and I get commissions and, and I can, that way I can play with flashback what we're wanting to do. I've played in bands for so many years that you have this, you have to play every weekend because some people think that it's about seeing how big your schedule is. I've, I've had people say, oh, yeah, we've got a huge schedule. I go in there and look, and it's be like 80% of these places are door gigs that I had played early on and learned a lesson that came out of there with barely enough money to get home on. And I thought, is it about listing that you've got? a hundred shows or is about listing that you got 30 of them that you come back and you got money to put in the bank and stuff. So all my guys in flashback are set good. They've got, or I'm not saying nobody in bluegrass is set good, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I guess what I mean, I've got guys that have uh, jobs and stuff too. And it'll be just like me where the, we don't have to say, gosh, this weekend's open. We got to fill it up. You know, now yeah. with me, now with me, it's more like, this weekend's open. I want to go get my family and my grandkids, and we're going to go somewhere. Uh, my after after being sick, I mean, it's funny. 
used to be that it was always chase, 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 that you would somebody get a new record and you'd say, well, we've not had a record out in a year. We got to do this. They got this record out or we're not getting played enough. We need to hear our stuff. We got to get something. So-and-so's playing this festival. Why ain't we playing it anymore? Since I've been sick, my priorities in life are so different. It's like what I want to do is, uh, is, well, first of all, I mean, being sick, my, my faith and everything is so much different. That's the most important. And I think a lot of times I always said, I have my faith and all that. That's the most important. But I don't think it really was. Uh, I think I think I had a place for it. And then when I was around people who said that, it was like, oh, yeah, that's mine, too. You know, but mine really is now. It's about uh, it's about living right, doing right. And uh being good to people, and I want, and and with players, I want to help. Uh, uh, I mean, like I mentioned earlier, it was hard to find people back then to help you. But I get, I get, I get excited over new new players now. I it's uh, and it's something that was different. It used to be new players that come along. It's like, wow, well, here's comes some new guy going to get everybody's jobs or whatever. And I get so excited. Now over new players. I mean, I was real excited this year when I saw Josh Swift on the final ballot at IBLA. Uh, it's good to see because you know guys like us, and and I've I've been on the ballot. I've been on that ballot maybe fifteen years and whatever, and I've wow. won it two times. And one time for me was enough. It was everything that I saw. Two times blew me away, but I realized. During the time I won in 2005 and then 2014, uh, nine years, and I realized that's nine years I was on the ballot there and stuff, and how fast nine years passes. And I would just like to see a lot of guys, and this is speaking for me, it's not speaking for everybody else, but I'd really like to see guys like us uh, with me. Uh, I would be just as happy to see myself not on the ballot and see some new guy on there because life is so short and these guys with a, an award just every year, uh, I would like to see more people get a chance to get that and, and stuff. And, uh, and like I said, I'm so glad to see Josh on and next year, if I'm not on it next year, it's not going to change nothing I do because <laughs> I've been, I've been able to be there and, uh, I, I I could tell you a funny story, and yeah. you you can edit this, but you you might like it. <laughs> the first the first time I won, I was there. We were at the Ryman, and I was sitting there, and it was my wife and son, and my album it did good that year, and I was up for a couple of things uh, for the instrumental album, which won, and for for dobro player. But I'm sitting here, and I'm guessing all the winners. Uh, well, the dobro thing comes up, and I looked over, and I said. Right as they announced, I said, Rob Ikes. Well, when they said that, I didn't hear who they announced. So my son uh, looks over and he goes, you won. And I said, I, no, 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 no. I, I, I sat there. So everybody's kind of looking around, I guess, like this. And I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, I'm not going to get up because I don't know. No. So I'm thinking real quick, well, if I get up. And it's me. I'm going. I don't. I got to figure out how to get on stage. If it's not, I don't want to look. I don't. Want, I, I need to look like I'm going to the restroom or something. So 
Anyway, I stood up, and when I stood up, Jerry Douglas stood up, and I said, oh, gosh, Jerry's won, and I've stood up, and, and everything. Well, Jerry's looking at me, clapping his hands, and, and he motions me, and it's like, wow, I guess I did win. I didn't know. So <laughs> I get up there, and it, like, it, 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 never, it never really soaked in. Uh, even it took, it took days, but it was funny because Jerry, uh, I don't know if, I can't remember if Jerry followed me on stage or what happened, but Jerry was with me in all the pictures we had. And just like what I said, Jerry was so happy that I had won and Rob was too. And, and I've never won a fraction of what they won. They won everything. But I, I think I know that feeling because I'm ready to see some other people get a chance because that's the stuff that keeps people wanting to play, uh, giving these people their due. And I know there's young, there's young people out there, but just like in my situation, give things to people while they're here, because I found out being ill, it can be, I could have been done tomorrow. And, and there's some great players out there on all these instruments. And I just hope they will eventually include some of these players because there's so many people that, uh, play the festival circuit that's out there every weekend living out of vans and stuff. And then you got some guys that just make records and they don't have to do that part. Yeah. And I just like to see a lot of the road musicians get a little more, more attention. For sure. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been great, Phil, man. I've enjoyed I've this. Wore you, I've wore you out. I know no that. Way, man. I'm this sorry. Is, <laughs> <laughs> this is, I, I bet that everybody's just going to really love this. There's so many great stories and, and you're such a, an inspiration to me, you know, your, your humility, you're, you're very humble and kind. And, and I think that above music and any of the stuff, I think that that's, that's really important, you know, and well, just, you know, it's, it's amazing. I learned a long time ago, uh, people, I guess, believe their own press too much and things like that. And I've told, I've told people, you know, I told my guys one time in the band, I said, no matter how big you get on what you do, whether it's a doctor, whether you're the best doctor in town, whether you're the best banjo player, one of the best banjo players or whatever, the most, like, out on the road, the most important thing is you're driving down the road, and if you have a blowout in the middle of the night, most important man in the world at that time is the mechanic that comes and changes your tire. And I've always give, I, I, I don't think, in my thing, I just don't think anybody is any different than anybody else. I just think that uh, the whole world's in, the whole world is so important. I mean, you know, you could be the best player or whatever, but those people that come in every weekend and buy tickets. I've, I've always really, uh, with booking, I learned, because I was a booking agent too, and I learned one time uh, with a promoter we were talking, I was telling about this band that I was booking, and it wasn't my band, but it was in their band, we was talking about how good they were. And he said, well, I know they're real good, but said, I've got a thousand seats out of here, and I need to be able to sell them. How many seats will they sell? And it was like, huh, that's... That's a point right there, you know. If you if you really don't give back to the fans, and Facebook is such a good thing. I try to mm -hmm. I try to take time. Uh, I, I know a lot of people aren't don't do like I do. I do uh, I probably a little much, but I try to take time. If people write, I try to write them back. 
or something because I just think it's important. Those are, and it's not really about selling CDs, but it's just about being nice to people and yeah. stuff. And and it it's as easy to be nice as it is not to be, you know. Perfect example. My my mom is always telling me, you know. Troy, now have you have you mm. talked to Phil? Have you talked to Phil? Oh, or I, she's always saying nice. about about your posts, and she's like, I sent him now. I sent him a nice post, and he responded back to me. I can't believe that, you know. And that is all. So that's sweet. cool. Oh, you know, when I got sick, uh, there was times on there, and this is true because people would write comments, and and I would I would have fifteen hundred two thousand comments because I've got different websites. I got different pages. Yeah. And I would go start marking them and I would write. And I remember being in the hospital, I had my iPad and I would type and I would type because I just felt it was important uh, to make a connection. And what's funny is those people are people that will always come up to your show. And then so they'll say, I wrote you or whatever. And once you put a face with it and stuff, they become friends. And it's it's funny. I mean, I've got so many people. I tell my wife, we'll get all these at Christmas, we get all these Christmas cards in, and they'll people send me pictures of their families and <laughs> and all, and it's great because I know them and I get to see them grow up and stuff. And and uh, I tell my wife she she won't know who they are, and I say well, it's easy. And then the cool thing is I can go to Facebook and show them. The next thing I know, uh, <laughs> she's friends with them, and and then we talk we talk around the house about these people. It's just. Uh, it's it's really neat. I've been I've been real blessed. I mean, and I'll say this is the last thing I'm gonna say. And I'm gonna let you go. But this was <laughs> it's just something with Facebook that really helped me when I got sick. Uh, people asked me. They said, "Are you gonna go public with this? You gonna keep quiet?" And I said, "I want to go public because I, the people on Facebook. If I I've got, I mean, if with all the friends I've got, if I can get these people, some of these people praying for me." It's going to be pretty good. Well, there were so many prayer chains. I mean, it's like one person would write me and they would say, you know, our church is praying for you and all. And then I would get up in the morning and I would have letters, uh, messages from overseas, from Europe and and, and China and places of people saying, hey, we we were praying in your church for you, in our church for you this morning. And I thought, you know what? I'm covered 24 hours with this, and I could tell. I mean, when people would get on, it's like everything was good. And you know, I I, t- I told my wife. I said the thing about it is, you can be private with things, and it, it, what good does it do you? But if you run into somebody going through maybe the same thing, you might be the person that keeps them from giving up. Or the person like me, when the doctor says we can't do anything more, the person that just says, "Well, my doctor said this." You know, I just uh, I want people to know from the very first that I wasn't going to give up and that uh, I was going whether they wanted to go or not. They could delete me, but I was going to drag them along with it <laughs> because, uh, you know, everybody you, you, you can be a musician or a doctor or nurse. But one thing we've all got in common is we're all going to be hit by something someday, whether it's something like diabetes, a heart attack somebody in their family. And it, and I think it's inspiring just to see people that say, okay, well this this happened, but I'm gonna keep you know, it didn't it it didn't stop me. And I always looked at as long as I was able to get up every morning, that was that was a, a bonus day. And I and I so I've took a lot of my time 
thing I do on the internet a lot now, uh, more than playing or anything, is I talk to a lot of people that send me private messages that somebody in their family has cancer or what, and they won't advise. And there's a lot of people that right now that uh, that I that I've got going to Vanderbilt, nice. and they're they're doing good. I just if all this music I've done all my life, if it's made me help maybe save one person like it has me uh, from being sick, then that's 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 the reason I was put here to play i think if it's saving one person or making them make a, the the i guess by saving them saying make a decision that it don't it don't have to end here but that i've got more options and that's all i wanted to do is to nice. give people an extra chance oh man well that's a that's a great point i could talk to you all day man it's super uh, oh, inspiring oh, you can oh, you can <laughs> holler at me anytime you know <laughs> For i sure. won't talk to, i won't talk to you as long when we <laughs> oh, do that no, you I just give you a bunch of stuff to edit, but I want to say real quick just a couple of things. I want to thank everybody for tuning in to to uh, your blog. As you call it, you call it a blog. Or well, this uh, this like uh, recording or a podca- the, podcast. Yeah, it's a podcast. It, it uh, um, or vlog, I guess, a video kind of. A little bit of both, I yeah, guess. Yeah, something like that. Well, ever uh, I, I want to just thank everybody for tuning in uh, to your podcast. This is the first one I've done. And uh, I hope as long as we've talked that people have been able to learn to understand Southern by the end of all this is <laughs> over with uh, or something. And, uh, you know, I, I, I just something I'll say to Dobro players, the whole thing about it uh, that I always tell people, uh, pick all you can. If you go to jam sessions, don't go to jam sessions where a lot of people go to jam sessions where they're the, they're the star, where it's like, oh, I'm going to go in there and show everybody play. I always wanted to be the worst person at a jam session, which that usually was the case, because it gives you a bar to play up to. I always wanted to play up to those guys, because if you go in there and you're playing with people who aren't, a lot of times it doesn't it doesn't press you to do better. And I always wanted to play with people that made me have to work harder. And I, and I always, when I jammed, I always made sure when I was young and starting out that playing with these kind of people was important because it's easy to get in situations where you get bad timing or bad ideas. If you get with people that, that can get you playing good and everything, it makes it good. It makes it real good. And another thing is once you learn all this stuff or learn some tricks, man, share it with people. It's a, it's, it's not a bit of problem to sit down and and take time to show somebody a lick, Mm -hmm. uh, because that person you show a lick in twenty years might be somebody that's uh, that's playing uh, at the Grammys or something with some band making millions of dollars, and and you might need a ticket. But <laughs> you know, the, the thing is, just I've always just tried to be good to everybody and never think of any consequences. I, I was never, I never took time with somebody thinking I'd get something back. I just did it to, to uh, because I I I wanted to, and I thought. You know, this this knowledge is something we need to pass on to people. And and this instrument, when I first started playing, it was pretty small. And now we've got a pretty good thing. And I think it's going to be around for a long time. I really do. And one last thing, man. When I talk to you, Troy, you look just like Alan Bobby played in Grasstown with me. <laughs> oh, you really? do, man. I need to take a screenshot of you right here. Alan. To show it to- <laughs> look up Alan Bobby. Man, he's here, a- let me- He's one of the best mandolin players in the world. Look straight on him and get a screen. Oh. 
Yeah, man. I, I'm going to post that. I'm going to post that on his page. <laughs> but, yeah, look at Alan Bobby, man, with your hat and everything. Yeah. Alan, you could, B-I-B-E-Y. Alan Bobby in Grasstown, I see. Oh, yeah, yeah, I just put in Alan Bobby. He's uh, probably, he's one of them guys that's just, I think, one of the greatest mandolin players in the world. Uh, he's about my age. He played with, uh, when Doyle Lawson split up years ago, the first time when they left, he, Alan started a band called uh, The New Quicksilver, and it was all the guys that left. And this guy's <laughs> just, I uh, mean, he's just smoking mandolin player. Wow. <laughs> so, so check him out. But anything I can help you with in the future, if you need anything, uh, uh, if you ever want to do a, a tab or anything, let yeah. me know. Let me know. I uh, I can't write them, but I can call out numbers to you if you ever want to do anything. Oh yeah, I mean yeah. On some on some things, I have a uh, another site where you know sometimes I'll I'll do transcriptions of people's stuff. And, yeah. And then uh, well. Them, you know. I wouldn't say this, and I'm gone, man. You, when I was sick, you, you put up a tune for me, and and sent the, your royalties off that. Uh, I appreciate that, man. Aww. All that stuff, all that stuff. That's that's what that's what we're talking about, man. Give them back, and uh, and I've tried to give a lot over the years, and you do, and and believe me, one day when you don't expect it, you'll be there needing something, and there's all those people there to help you. Wow. You know, it's like like you did, man. It's <laughs> this it's community. This the bluegrass community is the best insurance policy in the world. Really is. That's uh, great. They, the, the, you know enough people here. I, I've told somebody once, you got to know enough people to carry your casket. If you know six people in bluegrass, it don't take you long to find that many <laughs> friends. <laughs> so uh, that's true. <laughs> we're gonna be good, man. I, I thank you. <laughs>